Today on Against the Grain, why does the U.S. intervene militarily around the world? Supporters might claim that the U.S. acts in the interests of national security. For critics, a likely answer would be that the country wants to exercise influence and domination over others. Journalist Andrew Coburn, however, argues that a great number of military decisions are based on financial benefit and profiteering, including for rival bureaucracies within the military. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Outsiders generally find it hard to grasp an essential truth about the U.S. military machine, which is that warfighting efficiency has a low priority by comparison with considerations of personal and internal bureaucratic advantage. So writes Andrew Coburn in his latest book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, in which he argues that most people, even on the left, have no idea of how the military operates. Coburn is Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and has written many critical books about the U.S. military. When I spoke with Andrew Coburn, I asked him about the pullout of the U.S. from Afghanistan and the centrality, in 20 years of occupation, of keeping the money flowing to the military. Yes, I mean, you know, people say, talk. there's a lot of talk of blunders and, um, you know, mistakes and blindness. But I, it's my view, has been, you know, even before this current fiasco, that, that they're not so dumb, really. You know, that they've actually quite successful in pursuing their objective, and which is getting money, I mean, keeping the money flow going. And you can see that really quite vividly expressed in the whole Afghan experience because they continually do things which make no sense uh, in terms of um, you know attaining the professed objective such as overcoming the Taliban and winning the hearts and minds of the Afghan people but make a lot of sense if the objective is to make a great deal of money. I mean um, it's an example I cite in the book I mean after talking to John Sobko, the uh, uh, Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, which was a, a whole row of, uh, there used to be a whole row of rusting uh, G222 Italian-made transport planes sitting rusting beside the runway at Kabul airport. And they'd been brought in to be the Afghan transport fleet, but they were decrepit, would never, you know, they barely made it into the airport and had clearly no condition to fly any further. Um, that was a $500 million deal, our money, arranged by a former U.S. Air Force general, um, you know, and, and obviously very corrupt undertaking, very profitable one too. So, I mean, there's, you know, dozens of examples from this war and from others um, where, as I say, either you think they're fools, which I don't think they are, um, or they have a different objective from the one they tell us. You write that, quote, the U.S. defense complex is best thought of not as an organization, but as a living, insatiable creature dedicated only to its own defense and power. Uh, Quite a statement. Can you explain what you mean there? Well, yes, I 
you know, I came, arrived at that conviction. I didn't really sort of, I wasn't really able to really sort of internalize that for a long time until I heard about a, a, a very interesting study that was done of the rate of growth of the U.S. defense budget since 1954, uh, done by a very brilliant former Pentagon analyst, Chuck Spinney. Um, and he realized that, or he demonstrated that the, um, that the budget has grown at an overall rate of 5% a year. I mean, sometimes it's very, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but overall the curve is 5% a year. And what's interesting is that when it seems to be dipping below that 5% on any particular um, sustained basis, there's an immediate reaction, there's an immediate threat um, at the end of the, uh, when Eisenhower, for instance, it dipped at the end of the Eisenhower years, because um, Eisenhower developed other priorities, and there was an immediate reaction. John F. Kennedy came along and talking about the missile gap, and there was a huge explosion in defense spending. It dipped at the uh, end of the Vietnam War for obvious reasons. We just ended a major engagement overseas, and immediately, there was talk about a you know much bigger Soviet threat than we'd ever thought, and there was a consequent jack up in defense spending. The same happened um, following the fall of the Soviet Union, and it's actually happening. You know, it's certainly happening now. So it, it, I really got the impression of this organic creature, you know, which like whenever it's under threat, its food supply is threatened. It reacts by in, you know imparting the news that you know seeding the conversation with you know talk of more threat so we obligingly give it more money it's, it's a very good way to understand it I think. Say a bit more about the present then because obviously after 20 years the US has pulled out of Afghanistan you know it appears that a chapter is at an end uh, would you say it's not at an end uh, just in terms of keeping that five percent growth happening? Oh, it's absolutely not at an end in terms of the budget. In fact, if you notice, uh, in recent weeks, um, both the Senate and House Armed Services Committee have voted, uh, both controlled by Democrats, have voted to increase the budget by 5%, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, this bipartisan accord. I don't know that that'll get through the full house, but um, I think very likely it will. And you know, there's an absolute. Uh, there's no talk of really. Well, there is talk on the progressive side of cutting the budget, but that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And I've every confidence that the creature will. You know, <laughs> the creature's food supply will be sustained and indeed increased. I, I pointed out a little while ago that uh, there was. Um, the commander of the Pacific Fleet. He was testifying uh, in front of Congress on the need to, uh, to, in support of something called the Pacific Defense Initiative, which is something mainly cooked up by the Navy to give it to, to get extra money to confront the Chinese. Um, it's it's uh, $28 billion over the next few years. Just that's only part of the money they want to confront the Chinese. And I just happened to notice looking him up, and there he was sitting there in his beautiful uniform, his chest um, covered in ribbons, all these awards. One of them was the Afghanistan Campaign Medal. So this Navy Admiral had managed to win a medal for showing up in Afghanistan. Um, 
And I thought, isn't it fitting? Here they are asking for more money for a different threat. And they, you know, they did so well out of Afghanistan. It showed that to me there's continuity <laughs> in, the, in the enterprise. Those of us on the left often think of the military as one entity. And yet you write that we really can't understand the dynamics that propel military spending without actually looking at the competition between different military bureaucracies, the Air Force, the Navy, etc. Can you explain how they compete with each other for resources and how this illuminates the argument that you're making that the military is this insatiable creature constantly uh, consuming more and more resources and tax dollars? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the most sort of vicious, the vicious battle, the main battle is the battle for budget share um, between, you know, principally between the three or four services, um, which all have sort of rather different personalities. So we could go into that, but they, uh, uh, it's the battle to, you know, to, you know, for who can grab the lion's share or bigger share of the, uh, of, the of the pot, of the overall pot. And as an example, I mean, I write about um, it's a very good example in the evolution or the creation of a particular plane, the A-10, which I mean works very well for its stated purpose, uh, ground support plane for supporting uh, Air Force plane for supporting troops on the ground. It can sort of attack tactical targets, tanks, and enemy formations on the ground much better than anything else. The reason it exists was that in Vietnam, basically the grounds of the Air Force had all these sort of supersonic jets really designed to go and drop nuclear bombs on Moscow. Um, so it was hard pressed to provide ground support uh, on, you know, on the ground, troops on the ground, where it was actually needed. And they got the Air Force worried they got news that the Army was developing its own super advanced uh, ground support helicopter. Um, and they were worried, the Air Force therefore worried that they would lose the ground support mission. They didn't really care about it. In fact, they were rather disinclined to support troops on the ground. It's not part of their vision. It's not, it's not what they feel they're there for. But they certainly didn't want someone else getting the money for that mission. So to ward off the threat of the army grabbing the ground support mission and budget, they commissioned this ground support plane, which became the A-10, um, which actually turned out to do the job brilliantly, just because some very brilliant people were, in, as it happened, in charge of uh, creating it. Um, and so, <clears throat> but having done it and having beaten off the threat of the army, they then, you know, thought, well, we're lumbered with this plane. It doesn't, it's ugly. It can't go supersonic. It doesn't cost very much. It's quite cheap to operate. It's not at all what we want. And they've been trying to get rid of it ever since. Well, the A-10 figures into a number of the stories that you write about in your book, The Spoils of War. And I wanted to ask you, staying with this question of the competition between different branches of the military, if you can talk about the, the history, the very interesting history of the idea that air power could almost single-handedly win wars without many troops on the ground. 
Yes, I mean, it's it's very clear that this is driven by a bureaucratic, you know, imperative. I mean, originally you had you had the army, and then when aeroplanes came along, you had the army air corps, and it was just a sort of branch like the artillery. Um, or, or whatever, or signals or something. And uh, and it was held in rather low regard. Um, didn't have a big budget. Um, so you had this group of of people, of men, in, in the Army Air Corps who chafed for a bigger platform, for a bigger budget, for, you know, for their, their place in the sun. And to do that, I mean, to earn that, to justify that, they had to argue that air power, aeroplanes, could win wars all on their own. And they developed a whole theory of how this might be accomplished. It was a very sort of mechanistic theory that, you know, that the enemy had, um, I can't, don't think they, uh, I'm not sure when this phrase came in, but the enemy, there were critical nodes that were sort of key pieces of the machinery of the, the enemy system, that if you could destroy those, then the whole thing would grind to a halt. And they, um, this was famously sort of expressed in the during World War II when they got a chance to try this out. When they said, if we destroy the German ball bearing industry, then the whole of German industry would grind to a halt and victory would be ours. Actually, it didn't. You know, it was. It turned out to be a futile enterprise. Planes sent to bomb the ball bearing factories were shot down in large numbers. So large numbers they had to abandon the the idea for a while and you know anyway the germans made ball bearings you know still had plenty of ball bearings in the economy you know the enemy will always find a way around but that's what led to nevertheless the dream endured and after world war ii they finally succeeded they claimed on the basis of really not much evidence or concocted evidence that it was bombing, it was strategic bombing had really won the war and it was you know, burning down all those Japanese cities and eventually, you know, incinerating a couple with nuclear weapons uh, that had really brought about victory and therefore, you know, we had to have an independent air force, which they got. Um, and that's, um, that's really what sort of, you know, driven it ever since is, you know, that's why they hate, you know, sorry to bring it back to the A-10 again. That's why they really don't like the A-10 because it reminds them it's it's connecting them to the army. It's connecting them to the world of fighting on the ground, which they their whole reason of existence was to get away from. Um, and, the, you know, many other factors as well. But that that's what's driven it. Journalist Andrew Coburn is my guest. We're talking about his book, The Spoils of War. Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, the A-10 and its, I don't know if rival is really the term, but a different fighter plane, the B-1 bomber, emerge time and again in the story of the military being driven by self-interest and self-dealing. And I wanted to ask you about two incidents that happened in Afghanistan that involved the B-1 bomber. So the A-10, as you mentioned, was in military terms, a much less expensive plane, $20 million, which of course sounds like a lot, but not in contrast to the B-1 bomber, which cost $300 million. The calculations about which planes to use and which to fund 
you argue actually has real human cost to them. Can you tell us of the two cases that you write about, uh, one involving Afghan civilians and the other involving the killing of American and I think an Afghan serviceman? Sure. Um, You know, in the wider scheme of things, you know, all the uh, hundreds of thousands of people, it looks like, or certainly 100,000 killed in Afghanistan. These are isolated incidents, but they're very telling. And the first is, was a case where a couple of A-10s were flying along in eastern Afghanistan, and they got orders to attack an enemy target. They said troops were in contact, and here was the target, and they were to bomb it. And... So they went to the location um, and they could see the, you know, what they saw was a farmhouse. And because they, because the A-10 is specifically designed to en- enable the pilots, you know, the best possible view of the ground, they were able to fly lower and lower and look through binoculars and they reported back. They said, no, there's no, this is not an enemy, you know, position. It's, it's just a family. In fact, it was getting towards evening and the, you could say they're bringing in the animals for the night. Um, no. And they were said, no, you have, this is the designated, came back orders over the radio. This is the designated target, you know, bomb it now. And they were saying, well, you know, and they were sort of arguing. And then another voice broke in, which was a B-1 bomber, Now, the, which was, five miles up, um, which was, well, 13,000 feet, uh, high above, couldn't, and they said, you know, ready to copy, said the B-1 bomber, meaning they were ready to do the bombing. So the argument with the A-10 pilots went on for a bit, and finally the controller said, are you going to bomb or not? And they said, no, (laughs) no, we won't, because this is not an enemy target, it's just civilians. So then they said to the B-1, you know, sorry, are you ready to copy? He said, ready to copy. And the A-10s flew away. And I know um, they could see in their, uh, you know, in their rear view mirrors, the sky light up behind them as nine tons of bombs descended on this farmhouse, which sure enough, just had an Afghan farm family, you know, almost all of whom were blown away. That's one incident. So it just shows, and it's really, it's, you know, it's a horrible, horrible tragedy, but also shows that a very important point, which I, you know, talk about a lot and I'm very interested in, which is the whole way in which, you know, the divorce from reality. You know, the A-10 can look, you know, pilots can look with their own eyes you know, look through, they've got a very big wide canopy. They can see what actually is going on. They could see the target. In this case, they could see a family, you know, parents and children herding in the animals, the sheep, into the compound, into the pen for the night. Whereas the B-1, which is, you know, everything the Air Force likes, the love military loves, which is they couldn't see. All they had were like, you know, was a screen. Um, they could, you know, they looking out the window, they, which is very thick anyway and not designed for precise observation. They had a not a good view of of, of of reality of the world outside, and so they simply, you know, bombed off 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 a computer screen. This, so, uh, but then the same thing happened in 2014, the following year, 
when again same thing there was a group of american soldiers um a small special forces team and they were on patrol uh in afghanistan they were helping to provide security for one of those elections we used to <laughs> hold in afghanistan and they were about to pack it they were about to pack it in for the evening when they came under attack from a you know obviously from the taliban people started firing at them that only they had a a, you know, an assigned ground support plane in the form of, yet again, a B-1. So the B-1, um, they're under attack and they say, calling for help, you know, we need support, we're under fire. So the B-1, the, as I describe in, the, in, the, in, the, in that part of the book, the, the, the weapons officer, He's sitting in a metal box. He can't even see out a window. He's sitting basically in a metal box looking at a TV screen. And he bombs what they were looking for. These special forces teams, they have um, infrared beacons on their helmets so that uh, when, you know, strobe lights, so a friendly plane with an infrared vision can see the friendlies, can see their people, on, identify the people on the ground. And so they could see the B-1 bomber knew there was firing going on. The pilot could see at least muzzle flashes. The guy in the metal box couldn't. Uh, they could see muzzle flashes, but they couldn't see the infrared strobe lights. So they assumed the muzzle flashes were the Taliban. So they duly bombed that position, you know, off the TV screen, off the computer screen. But of course, that was the American force. So they killed five Americans and one Afghan soldier. And the reason this happened was that no one had told the B-1 plane that actually their infrared viewing you know, goggles couldn't see strobes. So it was just, again, a sort of cut off from reality. And they were, didn't even know they were cut off from this reality. So they, you know, this is just two, I think, quite striking examples and largely forgotten by the outside world incidents. Um, except that once it became apparent that a B-1 had killed not just a bunch of Afghans, like in the first example I gave you, uh, but had killed five Americans, then there had to be, you know, there had to be this required very careful handling. So they assigned a two-star general, I mean, quite high-ranking for that kind of thing, Air Force general to investigate, who, as I described, carefully steered the investigation to put all the blame on the commander on the ground who wasn't killed, um, who was ex everything the military should want. I, I know this man. He was, you know, very capable, dedicated, brave, smart, young officer. His career, they blamed him for this accident. His career was over, so he's now out of the military. Um, the general who ran the cover-up is now a, a deputy chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force. Um, and the person who assigned him to basically do the cover-up was General Lloyd Austin, then head of CENTCOM and now Secretary of Defense. So I just think it's a very telling story on many levels of... Um, of the way the military really works. Sure, and it also points to one of the points that you make in the book, which is that in 
privileging the B1 over the A10, uh, you have a fighter plane that's incredibly expensive, mind-blowingly expensive, and complex in many ways, and very ill-suited for, as you argue, ground support. But that that speaks to a larger paradox that seems to go on with the spending by the U.S. military, which is that there's a, a trend toward ever more complex and expensive equipment. And ironically, perhaps, as the budget grows ever bigger, it produces fewer and fewer aircraft and ships and other military equipment. Now, that might sound like a good thing in theory if we didn't have to foot the bill um, and if it wasn't enriching all sorts of unsavory entities. But can you speak to this paradox and when you would date its origins? Has this been going on through most of the military's history? What do we know of that? Uh, Well, it's been accelerating. I mean, there's signs of it in World War II, um, you know, when they built, for example, the quite complex B-29 bomber to bomb Japan, um, which had a quite elaborate technology in all sorts of ways. It was pressurized and, I mean, there was, I don't know, it went into all the technical details, but it, it was also not a very good airplane at all. And the engine had a tendency to catch fire and so on and so forth. But it's been, it been, it's been accelerating ever since. And the reason is that, um, I say it's, I think it's I would say it's a consequence of money. The more money you wave in front of a you know a service, well the, you know the more money that's available, the more money you give them, obviously they're going to want to spend it, and so there's more people who are going to want to get it, and that in, that encourages that particularly produces so that you know so that that's added on and becomes complexity. I mean. I'll give you a little example, um, which is uh, refueling tankers. You know, for years, I mean, Air Force, one thing the Air Force has been very good at, you know, has, a, has had a big fleet of refueling tankers, which are really the sinews of the American military empire, if you think about it. I mean, the reason we can go off and bomb places all over the world is because of refueling tankers. I mean, planes, almost, almost none of them. With some exceptions, none of the planes have the range usually to get to the get to the target. So we depend on tankers. Okay, and the tankers have worked. There's been a guy the in the most common tanker. There's a guy crouched lying down at the back of the plane, and there's a sort of hose coming out the coming out of the plane, and he steers that. He's looking through a little window, and he steers that onto the receiving plane. He can sort of watch. So it sort of and you know steer it on so it connects and they can pump the fuel so but then the air force says that you know okay we can have a new tanker and someone comes along and says well i can give you something much more interesting than just a human being steering this you know using his naked eyes we'll have a screen a guy will steer it with a cursor he'll be looking at a you know a computer screen in the cockpit up with the other guys and he'll 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 steer it in so this <laughs> And this is a very complex piece of technology, and it doesn't work uh, for all sorts of reasons. It's just one example. So they, they, there's always what happens is they say, okay, we're going to build, you know, umpty ump tankers. Then, uh, and it'll cost so and so much. Then, because of all this complexity they add on, 
um, because you know more people have to be fed um, more contractors have to be fed and so forth the cost always goes more it grows more than what they projected so finally you know the, before it breaks the entire budget they say well in that case we can't have you know a hundred of these planes we can only really build 50 um, but they so they end up with a smaller force and so we you know and if they're replacing a hundred of older simpler planes and now you only have 50 the force inevitably shrinks so therefore we get less and less defense for more and more money and it's you know it's something I think you know we often the argument over the political argument of the defense budget often takes the form of oh well you know we spend all this money but we should you know we can much better spend it on health care and you know education and so forth which is true of course that's where the money should be going but it's also the progressives particularly should should learn to uh, learn to understand this it means we get we get a bad defense you know we, if we're going to have armed forces if we feel the need for the you know the nation to be protected or to ready be ready to protect itself then we might as well have a decent military and the way it works is we're getting a we inevitably get a poorer and poorer defense so big budgets aren't just you know diverting resources from worthy ends like healthcare or education big budgets give you inevitably a poor defense you're listening to against the grain on pacifica radio i'm sasha lilly and today i'm joined by andrew coburn we're discussing his book the spoils of war power profit and the american war machine he's washington editor of harper's magazine and biographer of Donald Rumsfeld. His other books include Kill Chain, Drones, and the Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. So in looking at the U.S. military and uh, the enormous amounts of money it spends and, and on what it spends it, how much influence do decisions about what the military should buy uh, and at what price how much influence do U.S. arms manufacturers have on those questions? I would say almost total. Um, you know, the defense lobby uh, is a sort of such a massive presence in Washington. It's why, you know, most of the defense contractors have their head offices in or near Washington. Oh, many of them do. Um, you know, they, they spent an enormous amount of care, effort, and money on lobbying. Uh, the connections are, it's a really a seamless web. I mean, you know, I can cite the exa example of the revolving door. Nowadays, almost, almost without, entirely without exception, um, senior officers, and, you know, many junior ones too, when they retire from the military, go to work for a defense contractor. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of them. There's been a, there's now some very authoritative studies. In fact, the General Government Accountability Office just came out with a report saying 1,700 in the last few years, 1,700 senior officers and acquisition officials have gone to work, have left the Pentagon, retired, and gone to work for defense contractors. So it's really, you know, they they just, if you're a, if you're in the you know in the in government service in the military service 
you've got to, you know, you inevitably have an eye um, once you get to senior rank as to what job you're going to get with who when you retire. And therefore, you're going to take very good care not to annoy <laughs> your prospective employers in any serious way, which is why there's so little resistance to whatever the defense contractors uh, want. I mean, then that's one part of it. Then the other part is, of course, by the Congress, uh, you know, the enormous sums pumped into congressional campaigns by the defense lobby, which, um, you know, which is why, you know, the reward comes in terms of employment and jobs, but employment and, you know, manufacturing enterprises in relevant members' constituents, constituencies. So, you know, if you once you've become chairman of a an important congressional committee to do uh, that has to do with defense spending, suddenly, hey presto, the contractors are going to discover, you know, the, the how perfectly suited your district or state is for building all sorts of weapons, all sorts of offices. And do you think this is why there is such bipartisan support from Democrats uh, as well as Republicans for military spending? I mean, on the one hand, there's the question of whether this might undergird some kind of military Keynesianism, that is, that military spending might create jobs in a district. On the other hand, you argue that perhaps military spending doesn't create that many jobs in the first place. So then if that's the case, what drives the politicians, the donations to their campaign coffers? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, and then as long as it produces well, you know, one or two jobs, they can say to their constituents, look, you know, look at the benefits I'm bringing you. I mean, in several cases, of course, many cases, of course, it produces rather more than that. Yes, I mean, it's, it's really, it's the money you know, that they pay in terms of uh, campaign contributions and plus the, you know, which can be justified and the support for weapon spending can be justified by claiming, you know, great economic benefits for the district or state. As you mentioned, you know, I argue that actually, yeah, sure, it does produce some economic benefits, but it, if you put the money instead into education or health care, it would produce more employment, be actually economically much better. It's a very wasteful form of pump priming. Well, let me ask you about the influence of U.S. arms manufacturers on another instance of U.S. geopolitics, and that is with the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe in the 1990s, which was highly controversial, and it was couched in language of promoting peace and security. However, the effects of that expansion ultimately led to greater insecurity in the region. What role did U.S. arms manufacturers play in the NATO expansion? Well, it was kind of quite blatant, really. Um, there was a thing called the Committee to Expand NATO, set up in the early 90s, uh, the guiding spirit and director of which was uh, Bruce Jackson, who was a vice president of the Lockheed Corporation. <laughs> I mean, how, how, how clearer uh, could it be? I mean, Bruce always say with his hand on his heart that his, his position at Lockheed had absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> his very hard work to expand NATO. Um, but it clearly, I mean, I know that, you know, Lockheed in particular um, 
was very aggressive in, you know, in working not just Jackson, but, you know, its whole lobbying spectrum was devoted to promoting the expansion of NATO. Um, you know, there were very sort of arms manufacturers were sort of swarming. Over. I remember one former diplomat in Eastern Europe saying they were swarming like flies around every sort of prospective NATO, you know, meeting in support of NATO expansion in Eastern Europe. And it was it was kind of disgusting. I mean, not only in the uh, in the geopolitical sense, because it ensured, you know, bad relations with Russia, you know, that have endured still today because we had promised, absolutely promised the Soviets, was it then were the Russians, uh, that if they withdrew from Eastern Europe, we would not expand NATO into Eastern Europe. I mean, that was a, they're very clear, you know, it's very clear that was a hard and fast promise, not in writing, unfortunately, uh, which the Americans were careful not to give. And then we did it. We did expand NATO. And, you know, the reason had to be, well, there were, the principal reason, I should say, was certainly the drive uh, by the big contractors, principally Lockheed, but others as well, uh, to, um, you know, to sell weapons then. I use the word disgusting because, you know, these at the time, certainly, uh, maybe still in many ways, but certainly at the time, were very impoverished countries. I remember the um, a senior official of the uh, IMF, um, who had a, Karen Lissikas told me, who was, uh, she fought against an effort to foist a whole bunch of helicopters on the Romanians. And he said, this is a time when there was no running water in the Bucharest hospitals. But still, you know, these lobbyists, these salesmen uh, for uh, for the uh, defense corporations were swarming around, you know, were offering basically bribes to Romanian politicians to sell the, you know, this ridiculous, they were trying to sell them the Dracula helicopter. I remember, I remember quite well. So that's, you know, it was, it shows, I mean, it's, you know, the fundamental point about the, the about this is that in, you know, in order to make money to, you know, remilitarize Eastern Europe, um, make money for Lockheed and elsewhere by remilitarizing Eastern Europe, we've ensured political instability in Europe for foreseeable future. I'm speaking with journalist Andrew Coburn. He is the author of The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, which is published by Verso. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Tell us about the the drive to keep competing with, well, after the Soviet Union, the Russians, and the, the hypersonic weapons development program. I love the hypersonic weapons development program because... Um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't really, but it's such a sort of beautiful example of everything I'm talking about. I quote actually a couple of times in the book the the words of a guy called Ivan Selin, who back in the 60s was an important official in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And he used to tell his group, um, his team, he, when new, new arrivals, he'd say, welcome to the world of strategic weapons where we program weapons that don't work to meet threats that don't exist. Um, so they, 
and this was the hypersonic weapon is a perfect example of that. Um, it basically, I mean, I don't want to bore the audience with all sort of technical details, but the hypersonic weapon, the idea is it instead of like a ballistic, ballistic missile, you know, goes up and follows a parabolic curve and then, you know, goes towards the target, which can be close at hand or, I mean, medium range, a few hundred miles, or can be intercontinental like the, you know, nuclear ICBMs we have pointed at Russia and they have pointed at us. A hypersonic weapon, the idea is it goes up to the fringes of the atmosphere and then skips along the top of the atmosphere and can maneuver because it's still, you know, it, it can use, you know, aerodynamic and maneuver aerodynamically, which makes it very hard to shoot down in theory. And then, you know, zooms in and hits the target, goes at lightning speed, five hypersonic means five times the speed of sound, and some of them are meant to go far, many times faster than that. Uh, and that's meant to be a great advantage over the old fashioned ballistic missiles, because a ballistic missile, once you see it, you know, begin its journey, if you're watching with satellites and radar, you can predict pretty accurately, you know, its its path and therefore shoot it down. Uh, again, in theory. So they um, they tried this in the 50s, because there are very few new ideas in this business, and they discarded it. it didn't really work very well. Technically, it was a bust. But then, you know, they went away, they never stopped working on things like that. So there's been sort of flickering research ever since. And then what really sort of kicked it into new life was Putin. Uh, Putin announced in 2018, he said Russia had developed its own tremendous hypersonic weapon, or several of them, but particularly one called the Avangard, which was could evade the American anti-ballistic missile system because it would be maneuver and therefore our ABMs couldn't catch it. And then he, I remember at a big speech, he put up a big sort of illustration which showed these hypersonic missiles raining down on South Florida, you know, home of Mar-a-Lago and Donald Trump. So this really sort of kicked off a big boom here. And we had, you know, we had to have the hypersonic race. What I find sort of why I said I love this is because actually the technical reasons, there are very good technical reasons why a hypersonic weapon won't work in the way advertised. Certainly the, the crucial element is this maneuvering. And it seems fairly clear that over any distance at all, once it starts maneuvering, it'll lose energy because it's, um, you know, it's going by, it's sort of launched from a rocket, but it, you know, it's meant to sort of glide. It's a glide weapon, at, you know, gliding at very high speeds. But the moment it starts maneuvering, it'll lose energy and won't reach the target and will be inaccurate for all sorts of other reasons I, I won't go into. Um, and that's true for our, our our hypersonics and the Russian hypersonics. But furthermore, as I say, it's, it is to meet a threat that doesn't exist. I mean, and the threat that doesn't exist is, in the Russian case, is the anti-ballistic missiles, because they don't work either, because they can be easily defeated with decoys, as I explain in the book. You know, it's the perfect definition of a weapon that doesn't work developed to meet a threat that doesn't exist.
Since the end of the draft, most Americans have no experience in or connection to the military. So we find out the little that we do know from the mainstream media. How would you rate the media's job in giving us an accurate account of the workings of the military, including all the questions around the nuclear arsenal, which are as big an existential threat to all of us as global warming is? I'd say the media is terrible. Um, it's gotten it's gotten worse and worse. Um, partly, well, part of the reason is you know the inevitable you know, result of having you know beat journalists. So if you're if you're assigned to the Pentagon um, and you're expect you know you cover the Pentagon, if you once you start writing critically about what's going on, you you know your access you won't. You know all the things you need to satisfy the boss's you know demands for day-to-day -day reporting will suddenly get quite hard to get you won't be invited on trips you won't get the interviews you won't be in the briefings so that's a big disincentive to um to really sort of uh, dispassionate reporting um but beyond that there's a sort of credulity there's less and less interest in you know the stuff i go on about which you know what well, isn't that hard to find out you know how do these things really work how are they meant to work do they work you know there's all i mean the military makes greater and greater efforts to con in control information but still you know you can look at test reports um budgets um i mean again they keep trying to choke oh, you know, make classify more and more stuff, but still, it's a huge amount of information available. Uh, there are lots of experts around you can talk to, and it always depresses me that you see, like you know, we've just been discussing hypersonic weapons. Uh, you know, what I was saying about the reasons they don't work aren't very hard, that hard to understand, and fairly easy to get the data to you know support what I'm saying. But no one's interested. They're just there's this sort of sort of reverence for technology um you know and, and a concomitant absence of critical thinking um you know there are unfortunately those the thing that's going to make these making things worse is there was a whole body of veterans of the defense establishment um who used to who made it you know would they were basically the military reform movement which sort of appeared in the 1970s and did quite well in the 80s and had a lot of journalists paying attention to them and they've unfortunately you know getting either old or died um so there's you know fewer and fewer people who you can journalists who want to find out who can you know, who have a easy, you know, who will have people who can, e you know, easily explain and clearly explain what's what's going on and what's going wrong. I mean, it's still perfectly possible, but as I say, journalists aren't really trained. There's no sort of no way for journalists to get trained these days and how to, how to report on the military. I don't know. It's a it, there's all sorts of reasons for this, but I, I as I say, repeat return to my opening statement on this, I think the media is really terrible in covering the military and getting worse. Well, let me end by asking you if in the scene that you're painting of the military, self-interested, competitive, rivalrous, inefficient, 
in many ways with very little oversight or people watching. But from what you've been laying out, are there points of vulnerability that you think that people who are concerned about the military spending could target that might be um, more effective places to focus their energies than others? Anything that stands out? Well, I think the point I was making that, you know, quite, quite the argument is generally, political argument is generally either or, you know, we can, we can have a strong defense or we can have a, you know, a, a strong or even a, a functioning healthcare system. Uh, but it, you know, there's too much acceptance, I think, that, of, you know, that the large amounts of money do give us a strong defense. So I think particularly progressives should really pay more attention to, to what I'm saying, but to other people say it too, uh, or to this fact of life that a strong defense, a, a big, a, a ginormous budget inevitably brings you a weak defense, brings you a corrupt military and, you know, both corrupt in every way, including technologically. So that's important. Um, I think people should sort of, you know, so therefore try and, you know, understand, understand the technology. Um, so important since so much of this is advertised on the basis of mysterious, wonderful, wonder-making, you know, technology with amazing powers. They can, you know, be ability to kill people, kill the right people on the other side of the earth, uh, all that. People need to be much more dispassionate, skeptical about it. Um, I do worry that the, you know, we briefly mentioned this, you, know, fewer, you, you mentioned this, you know, with the absence of the draft, which I you know, don't approve of, don't think we should have a draft, but it does mean that the military is more and more an isolated caste. Uh, we don't as I say, you know, actually, it's very invisible. You know, how often do you see uniforms in the street? I mean, even in Washington, not very often. Um, they're all off in the Pentagon. Um, you know, you don't see, unless you know where to look, you don't see signs of the defense manufacturing complex. Um, the military bases are all well away from um, from the rest of human habitation, usually. So. And we have to, I think we should really, people must pay more attention to the, you know, people generally say, oh my gosh, you know, we're spending more than the next 10 countries in the world on, on defense spending, but people don't really comprehend what that is and the, the role of the military in our lives. I think we really need to do that. Andrew Coburn, thank you so much. Well, thank you, sir. I've been speaking with journalist Andrew Coburn, author of The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. That's published by Verso and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. His other books include Kill Chain, Drones, and the Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. 
please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>